first of all, let me say good, good after late afternoon. Um, because of uh, the HIV virus that I have attained, uh, I will have to retire from the Lakers uh, today. Um, I just want to make clear, first of all, that I do not have the AIDS disease, because I know a lot of you want to know that, but uh, HIV virus. Um, my wife is fine. She's negative, so no problem with her. Um, I plan on going on, living for a long time, bugging you guys like I've always have. So you'll see me around. I plan on being with the Lakers in the league. Hopefully David will have me for a while. Um, and going on with my life. Magic Johnson made his announcement on November 7th, 1991. It's a cliche to say that you remember something from a long time ago as if it were yesterday, but I can say with honesty that I remember that night as vividly, at least as I remember anything from that long ago. I had gone to dinner with my parents and grandparents, and of course I was just a kid then, so I didn't drive myself, but what I remember specifically was that my mom and dad took separate cars. My dad was a basketball coach, and I think it was because basketball practice probably had started that week, and he had to come a little bit later and take his own car because he had practice at night. Well, anyway, this is 1991, so there are no people texting us at dinner, or there's no alerts on our phones. We didn't have phones. And as we're driving home... I guess my mom and dad must have had it tuned to the same radio station in, the, in their respective cars because we're pulling into the driveway and we hear the news update on the radio saying, and Magic Johnson just announced that he is retiring from professional basketball due to the fact that he is HIV positive. And we get out of the car and I think all three of us at the same time blurted out, did you hear about Magic Johnson? I was just stunned, stunned. And it's difficult to compare it to anything in contemporary culture because two reasons. One is, of course, our understanding of HIV and AIDS was much different in 1991 than it is today. And secondly, the magnitude of Magic Johnson simply retiring would have been a lot to process notwithstanding the reason that he was retiring being so noteworthy. If I were to try to analogize it to something in 2016, it would be like if Aaron Rodgers all of a sudden called a press conference to announce that he was retiring from the NFL effective immediately so that he could return to his home planet. That's the kind of shocking announcement that this was for the culture as a whole. And just three days after Magic Johnson's announcement, on November 10th, 1991, the 9-0 Washington Redskins took on the Atlanta Falcons at RFK Stadium. Magic's news was the biggest story in the country, probably the biggest story in the world, and it had an impact across sports. 
As you know, everyone was touched by the news of Magic Johnson, including Andre Risen, who, like Magic, went to Michigan State. Andre spoke with Magic's family the day of the announcement, and this morning he told me that he thinks Magic has been touched by God to send the message that everyone is at risk. Ironically, the first professional athlete known to have died of AIDS played right here in RFK Stadium. He was Redskin tight end Jerry Smith, who died in 1986 at the age of 43. JB? Leslie, and certainly the reaction throughout the sporting community internationally has been one of sympathy for Magic. Andre Risen was one of the players who made the Atlanta Falcons playoff contenders. Atlanta was coming off a stunning victory over the perennial NFC West favorites, the San Francisco 49ers. The Falcons won the game on the final play, a Hail Mary. Atlanta, needless to say, was on a roll. In fact, the Falcons had won five of their previous seven games entering their matchup against the Washington Redskins. Atlanta coach Jerry Glanville embraced a circus-like atmosphere. The Falcons' sideline frequently included some noticeable, let's call them non-team personnel, whether that was servicemen or Vander Holyfield or even MC Hammer, and his sizable entourage. Football-wise, the Falcons were a young, talented team that featured a run-and-shoot style offense. The fact that this was the second week in a row that the Redskins would see a run-and-shoot scheme did not do Atlanta any favors, nor did injuries to starting quarterback Chris Miller and to superstar corner Deion Sanders. The injury to Sanders meant that the Redskins would look to put tremendous pressure on Falcons DB Tim McKire who would step in to be Atlanta's top defender in the secondary. Up 7-3 early in the second quarter, Washington would test McKire. Redskins led 14-3, and that first bomb was an omen. Washington, particularly Mark Rippon, exploited the depleted Atlanta secondary all day. Up 21-3, Rippon saw another chance to make something happen. Well, Jerry Glanville, if you've got some surprises and you've got some tricks up your sleeves, I'd suggest snipers down here this close. 42 seconds left. You're giving Washington three free, free shots into the end zone. You would suggest what, Randy? <laughs> With 42 seconds left, first and 10. Ball at the 19 of Atlanta. Griffin going for Clark. There is a flag on the play, back at the 17, and we'll await the call, but it's going to be against Atlanta, defensive holding, so the play stands as Gary Clark turns Bobby Butler and scores in the end zone. 
Washington led 28-3 at the half with the four scores coming via three ripping touchdown passes and a rare touchdown run by the normally statue-like Redskins quarterback. Washington had control of the game, but Atlanta showed some toughness early in the second half. Billy Joe Tolliver tossed two quick touchdown passes to Michael Haynes and Andre Risen, cutting the lead to 28-17. Things got more concerning for the Redskins on their next possession, when left tackle Russ Grimm left the game with an injury. Grimm was already subbing for Jim Lachey, who had been injured against Houston. That meant that reserve Mark Addicts would have to take Grimm's place. So Russ Grimm being helped off the field and Mark Addicts indeed heads on to take his place at left tackle. A very important position to say the least from the quarterback's perspective. If you're Mark Griffin, it's a very important position because that's where the guys you can't see are. Third and 11, ball at the 19. 10-19, left in the third quarter play. Irvin, the lone back. Going up top. Touchdown, Washington. Art Mook. And there is a flag. Without missing a beat, the Redskins had extended their lead. But the Falcons kept hanging around. As dominant as Washington had been, the Redskins hadn't quite put the game away. At least not yet. The posse continuing to run roughshod over the Falcons and Randy, to use your boxing analogy, Washington almost had Atlanta for the knockout in the first half. Atlanta's trying to come back. Well, they've got him set up, but they haven't been able to put him away yet. They haven't been able to put that knockout punch on the Falcons. Redskins had put the final nail in Atlanta's coffin, but there were still a historical footnote to this game that had yet to be written. Make it to the Super Bowl with a great record, all of it doesn't count. Brett Barr, the rookie out of Southern Mississippi, won the game for the Falcons from their own 12. Barr. And it's intercepted by Andre Collins, touchdown Washington. Second interception of the season for Collins.
Well, Brett Favre, did you ever have the Redskins on your schedule at Southern Mississippi? Wow. Welcome to RFK and the NFL. Andre Collins' touchdown off of the very first pass Brett Favre ever threw in the NFL made the final score 56-17. to The Redskins were now 10-0. In beating the Falcons, Washington had four touchdowns of over 40 yards, and three of those were over 60 yards. Rippon had also tied Sammy Baugh's club record of six touchdown passes in one game. And by the way, Rippon also threw for 442 yards. 203 of those yards went to Gary Clark, who had only four catches, but three of those four were touchdowns. Everybody on the team is just trying to keep the dream alive. It'd be nice to finish undefeated, Clark said after the game. Aside from giving up two blocked punts, the Redskins had looked about as good as any team could against Atlanta. Now they moved on to Pittsburgh, where they would take on an NFL coaching legend. Chuck Knoll's Steelers were in a time of transition. They had a good nucleus of players, and they showed flashes of great potential, but they hadn't quite harnessed everything together just yet. Still, the Redskins had a bullseye on their collective backs at this point. They were closing in on possible history, and everyone wanted to be the team to break the undefeated streak. The Washington Redskins, of course, are trying to become only the second team in history to finish the season undefeated, but they know how fragile that standard of excellence can be. It's kind of like that feeling. You're in an auto race, you're probably about uh, uh, seven-tenths of the way through the race, and yet you realize there's so much farther to go and you don't want to have something happen to your car. Injuries may still slow the Redskins down. They were fortunate to survive a missed field goal by Houston, and they were tied in the fourth quarter against Cincinnati. Cincinnati? Which is why Washington is confident, not arrogant, about the future. You don't ever look uh, down the road at being 16-0 uh, and having a perfect season. Of course, we prepare for each week, but it's always in the back of your mind of, gosh, what would happen if we did finish this thing up the way we, we started it. So while the Redskins celebrate success, they are well aware across town that once being considered invincible doesn't always mean being unbeatable. A minor recession right now, but in Washington, D.C., you wouldn't know it because as long as the Redskins are winning, everybody seems to be in a better mood. Can the mood of a city will a team to victory? It is better to speculate than prognosticate. Reality says that's very hard to do, and odds are we're not going to do it. But it's still great having a dream, and uh, I think that's what life's all about, isn't it? You have a dream and kind of make it come true. When asked what makes them special, the Redskins players say, well, we have a hot quarterback, a great running back, quick strike receivers, a good defense, and a solid kicking game. Sounds pretty much like the 72 Dolphins. Because Joe Gibbs has tried to temper their enthusiasm, he says, hey, all we're guaranteed is 10 and 6. The players arrived this morning looking confident, relaxed. They're almost businesslike, there's Joe Jacoby, in their quest to become only the ninth team in history to start the season 11 and 0. Well, they have good news and 
bad news for the Redskins. The good news is that running back Ernest Viner, who sprained his knee last week against the Falcons, is going to try to play today. The bad news is that defensive end Charles Mann is definitely not going to play. He's out with a sprained knee. So, Greg, that's the story from here where, by the way, they love their legends. About 100 people have asked me for an autographed picture of Terry. So if you could send some down by halftime, that would help. Sure, Leslie. I'll send you all my extras. I got a bunch of them. How many does she need? Now, you guys, the Steelers, were 7-0 back in 1978 and route to Super Bowl 13. Uh, was there pressure being undefeated? I think 7-0 is such a big deal. I, I, it's been a long time ago, Greg, but I think... Being undefeated is fun. If you're a veteran football team, you can handle being undefeated a lot better. That's why the Redskins, I think, are very, are, are very likely a team that since 1972, Dolphins could finish the season undefeated. They're a veteran football team, and they got a coach that will not allow them to believe they're as good as the press is making them out to be. Okay, and uh, that business about a loss being better than a victory is nonsense. Oh. <laughs> next up, Terry Salk with Giants head coach Ray Handley. It's next when we continue on the NFL Today. The homestanding Steelers wanted to be the team that finally beat the Redskins. But Washington had other ideas. Two tight end alignment with Don Warren joining Ron Middleton. It'll be first and ten. This is a dash and a design rollout and Rippin is going deep to Art Monk. Wide open. And Art Monk inside the five is stopped short of the goal line. Everett made the touchdown saving tackle and a gain of 63 yards to anger Chuck Knoll on this early first quarter play. Just moments into the game, the Redskins put the ball down at the one yard line and Gerald Riggs carried it in on the next play for a Washington touchdown. Not long after, a low Miller field goal and a touchdown pass to Monk expanded the lead to 17 nothing. Monk's touchdown was his ninth of the year, which tied his highest single season total after just 10-plus games. Another low Miller field goal made it 20 to nothing in the third quarter. Later in the third, the Redskins had the ball at midfield, still up by 20. Second down and 10. Watson lines up with two wide receivers to the top, but Rippin is going on the page for Gary Clark. Oh, and let's see the one one-handed catch. He did. What a play by Gary Clark, one-handed with David Johnson defending. 37 yards to the affable Gary Clark. Unique player and a unique style. Clark, one of those players who will drop a pass right in his hand and then come back with this kind of play. You won't see a more athletic or more unusual reception than that anywhere in the NFL today. And remember, he's playing with a injured hamstring as is Ricky Sanders and look at the man delivering that throw taking every possible second he could Donald Evans there to take his first and goal on the eight yard line Clark made one of the better catches you will ever see in the NFL even by 2016 standards that insane diving one-handed grab set up Gerald Riggs second touchdown of the game and it was 27 to nothing the Steelers finally got on the board on the first play of the fourth quarter with a Neil O'Donnell to Adrian Cooper touchdown pass. O'Donnell threw another touchdown pass a couple of possessions later, this one a 40-yard bomb to Dwight Stone with a little over seven minutes to play. With the lead still at a somewhat comfortable 27-14, 
Washington went to work to erase any lingering delusions the Steelers may have had about beating the Redskins. To do that, Washington would once again turn to Gary Clark. Third down and six coming up. Urbans, by the way, has gained 81 yards today. But this is a passing down. Classic Redskin shift of power. Now comes the motion with Monk. Griffin is going deep and wide open is Gary Clark. He'll score. It just seems, Marlon, that the Redskins can beat you any way they want to go. At 34-14, the competitive portion of the game was over, but the fireworks were not. The Redskins pulled Mark Rippon and a few other starters with the outcome no longer in doubt. Washington got the ball back with about three minutes to go and Jeff Rutledge under center. As you would expect... Redskins kept it on the ground for at least the first couple of plays as the Steelers used their timeouts. On third and ten, Rutledge came to the line of scrimmage and, curiously, called timeout himself. After the stoppage, this happened. Redskins called their first timeout. Third down and ten for Jeff Rutledge in relief of Mark Rippon. His pass is to Ricky Sanders, and another touchdown for the Washington Redskins. They can't even get to the two-minute warning. They scored again. 40 yards this time, and only the second touchdown catch for number 83. And there are going to be Pittsburgh fans who are saying, this is pouring it on. But when you put a backup quarterback on the field, you can't tell him you can't score touchdowns. He goes out, he runs the play, the first read is downfield. If the receiver is open, he's going to deliver the football. First touchdown throw of the year by Rutledge, and Low Miller will try to make it a 41-14 route. And the Redskins now have scored 97 points in the last two weeks. They won't have to worry about any tiebreakers with scoring, that's for sure, the way they're going. 41-14 was the final score, but the Rutledge touchdown pass to Ricky Sanders created some post-game awkwardness. Joe Gibbs was usually content to wave sheepishly to an opposing coach from a distance at the end of a game, rather than actually having a contrived handshake and a conversation at midfield, especially after a lopsided win. In this case... Gibbs felt the need to apologize to Chuck Knoll. It's difficult to tell for sure watching the interaction from a distance, but I'll describe it as best I can. Gibbs waves down Knoll, jogs over to him, clearly says, I'm sorry about that, while pointing towards the end zone where Sanders had scored. Gibbs goes in to shake Knoll's hand. The two men pat each other on the shoulder during the handshake, and Knoll says something. But... As Gibbs turns to walk to the locker room, Noel doesn't let go of Gibbs' hand, nearly yanking his arm out of the shoulder socket and, and pulling Gibbs in very closely. And then, the two men say something else to each other. Gibbs' expression never changes, and as they finally part ways, when Noel turns around, now facing the camera as he walks away, 
he has an enormous grin on his face. Was Noel upset? Was he passive-aggressive? Was he just busting Gibbs' chops? Who knows? After the game, Gibbs was characteristically gracious. That was not an intentional thing for that thing to go like that, Gibbs said, somewhat less than eloquently. If there's anybody I respect in the coaching profession, I'd like to wind up like Coach Noel. I felt kind of bad on that last one. He told me not to worry about that. He's a great guy, Gibbs added. It was the last time the two Hall of Fame coaches would ever go head-to-head. Noel retired at the end of 1991, and Bill Cower took over the following season in Pittsburgh. Noel was never able to beat Gibbs, as the Redskins won all three matchups against the Steelers during the overlap in Gibbs and Noel's respective tenures. After some close post-buy games against the Giants and Oilers, the Redskins had turned into a truly dominant team. What's so impressive as I go back and watch these games now is how good the Redskins are at neutralizing the opponent's pass rush and how good the Redskins are at rushing the passer themselves. Case in point, in the two games I discussed in this episode, Washington allowed zero sacks while getting five sacks against the Falcons and five more against the Steelers. What's particularly noteworthy is how many different players Washington had who could effectively rush the passer. Remember that the Redskins got those five sacks against the Steelers with their best pass rusher, Charles Mann, in street clothes. Everyone from Fred Stokes to Jason Buck to Tim Johnson to Eric Williams to Wilbur Marshall and others could put pressure on the quarterback and ruin opponents' drives in one play. That was just one ingredient in the Redskins' success. They had improved to 11-0 now and, in doing so, became the first team in the NFL to clinch a playoff berth. They were one of only nine teams in the whole history of the NFL to begin a season 11-0. However, only three of those teams had gone on to win the title. The Redskins' remaining schedule also appeared to be eminently doable. If, if, the Redskins could win their next game at home against the Dallas Cowboys. That's where we'll pick up the story next time.